Modern medicine is advancing at faster speeds than ever before. Yet the world still sees the healthcare experience as difficult and dated. The Real Chemistry podcast shares interviews with industry leaders who are innovating in healthcare. Join Real Chemistry's Chief Marketing Officer, Aaron Strout, as he explores how AI and ideas can come together to transform healthcare into what it should be. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Stroh, and I am the Chief Marketing Officer of Real Chemistry and the host of the Real Chemistry podcast. Today, I am broadcasting live from Palo Alto, California, and it will be relevant as you hear more about the conversation that I had with an amazing guest today, Ajit Singh. Ajit is the Managing Director and General Partner at Artiman Ventures. He's also on multiple boards. He's an adjunct professor at the School of Medicine at Stanford and uh, just an amazing storyteller. He spent 20 years at Siemens, uh, followed by a startup that it got acquired by Roche and then at Artiman. And you want to talk about a, a man with a finger on the pulse. Uh, also really just a great human being. And I think you'll hear more about that as we talk about how he thinks and how he treats people. We also do a fun speed round where we talk about important topics like AI and healthcare and pharma, oncology, what's going on in the space, diagnostics, neurotechnology, and then longevity. So I highly encourage you to listen in. I think you will come away a much smarter person. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. So feel free to reach out to the show if you have any comments or questions. Thank you. All right, Ajit, we are sitting here in your apartment in Palo Alto. And uh, thank you so much for welcoming me. It's a pleasure. I always love it when I can sit face to face and I'll credit to you. You were the one that said, why don't you come over and we'll do this in person versus over Zoom. And I'm really fascinated to talk to you today because uh, your reputation precedes you. I think I've seen you speak at a couple of conferences before. But one of the things that I love to do is I love to know why healthcare, right? And you obviously have a multidisciplinary background, but Let's talk a little bit about what led you into the field of healthcare in the first place. So before I answer your question, first of all, thank you for engaging me. I mean, I enjoy these conversations, so wonderful that we're doing it. Uh, the question of why I came into healthcare is quite hard to answer because the answer is too simple. Let me answer a different question, why I stayed in healthcare. When I joined Siemens, this was going back some uh, almost 30 years now, a conversation I had with one of my mentors there, Eric Reinhardt, and he said, once you're in healthcare, you're always in healthcare. It's not an area you can leave. And I challenged him, said, I, I don't see the point. I mean, I'm working for Siemens and there's other businesses in Siemens. Why won't I go try my hand at gas turbines or... He goes, we shall see. And it was such a prophetic statement. And so now the, that was the what, the, the why, um, number one, if I answer the question from a mission-driven perspective, there's nothing more satisfying. There's nothing more satisfying than being the innovator or enabling innovation that's going to change people's lives, whether to save them from disease, whether to help them with disease or to keep them healthy. And each time I thought I had understood an area or I thought I had enough mastery of the subject matter, I only realized the goalpost had moved further back. So that challenge of some universal power holding that carried in front of you and pulling it back, continuously pulling it back, it remained. I never got bored of the subject. Just, and of course, within healthcare, the fields changed. I began in artificial intelligence applications and imaging. 
this is 1988, uh, went on to do some other stuff in healthcare informatics, from there went to radiation oncology, from there went to imaging. So the, the subject matter kept changing within healthcare, but it was a field that just has enough gravitational pull and a centripetal force to keep you inside it. So that's why I didn't leave it. Now, if I look at it from a business perspective, strictly business perspective, there is a few areas of life where the demand is universal. Everybody in the world wants to be healthy. Everybody in the world wants to be treated if they're sick. Their ability to pay might be different, but everybody wants the cutting edge of technology and medicine and so on. It's a completely universal demand, and it's not going to go away. As long as there is life, there'll be death. As long as there's life, there'll be disease. As long as there's life, there'll be quest for health. That's not changing. So it's one of those evergreen business areas. Even if I strictly look at it from a business perspective, the arguments are quite compelling. So that's a question you didn't ask, why I stayed in healthcare. Well, I love that you steered it in a, I'll say, an even better direction, because I think you're right. If you did get into it early days, why did you stay? And you've obviously had a long and illustrious career. And you and I were just joking because I think we're probably about of the, the same age that early days of technology, which meant early days of technology and healthcare, it was a little painful, right? We were talking about back in 2001 and electronic health records and um, one of the business units at Siemens serving 1,800 different hospitals. And the fact that you were able to make a cutover as 9-11 happened from Tower 2 uh, is quite amazing. And just, I remember going all the way back to like 1992, 93, where you had the dial-up internet, you barely could make it work. You know, getting things to talk to one another was almost impossible and just how far we've come. And I guess before we get into the meat of it, I mean, it is a little remarkable, right? To take a look and just see with AI, and I know we'll get into all of this in a little bit, but just what we can do now at the touch of like our fingertips and how interconnected everything is today. Yeah, so a really great question because when I think of healthcare, I find it a very innovative field. That's not the popular perception. The popular perception is healthcare is very slow to adopt, they're very conservative. It takes 16, 17 years to adopt a new technology into mainstream. Yeah, for a good reason. You, you want to make sure, as the Hippocratic Oath goes, first do no harm. So all of that has to be established. That's why there's a regulatory framework. However, if I think of adoption, for instance, of technology for imaging, I mean, we're talking X-ray was invented in late 1800s, and it got adopted in late 1800s in healthcare. Healthcare has been an early adopter of a lot of technologies that we don't give it enough credit for. So it's a, it's a field that attracts really intelligent and very innovative people. So that was, if I could say, that was another reason why, you know, you, you build an ecosystem of people who we like to work with, who we enjoy working with. And healthcare gives me plenty of that. Uh, now, to, to come to the second aspect of your question, you know, what are the things that have changed significantly, say, compared to 30 years ago or 20 years ago? Uh, I think everything has gotten connected. So we think of an MRI machine as an IP address. We used to think of an MRI machine of a, as a multi-ton piece of metal with magnets, et cetera, et cetera, that would be sitting in a bunker somewhere with all kinds of shielding. All of that is still true, but we also think of it as an IP address or a collection of IP addresses that can signal outwards the health of the MRI machine itself. When does it need the next service? When does it need the next preventive maintenance. And oh, by the way, how many patients I did image today and what were their profiles and what were the outcomes and 
some statistical averages and so on and so forth, all of this is being sort of signaled outwards to something or someone who can make sense of it for, for improving efficiency or improving productivity or making it more beneficial. So that, that's been one very, very compelling uh, improvement or change. The other area I can think of is the broad area of personalized medicine, which you're very familiar with. Uh, we used to think of personalized medicine mostly applicable in oncology. So the two terms, you know, oncology and personalized medicine almost went synonymously, like one pertains to the other. Personalized medicine is universal, and there are now diagnostic techniques and other methodologies, many of them enabled by AI, that allows us to personalize the medicine to the individual, to their individual disease, to the state of their individual disease, and what medicines or what therapies or what interventions will have benefit. So those would be a few examples of sea changes in healthcare that have happened. Healthcare has become also very digital. I remember being on the board of a hospital system in India where when we were building out the newer facilities, we said we will build them without a film room, without a file room. So there is no film room. There is no file room. There is no place to store paper. So what are you going to do? I mean, you're you're forcing a system, which is initially, of course, it you get a lot of resistance and, and everything. But that's the best time, if ever, to get used to a, a new technology. And, and today, there, are, or there have been hospitals now for two decades which have been fully digital. So Health South, for example, in Alabama. I mean, Health South Alabama. You, you don't think of a sort of second-tier city in Alabama having a hospital. Or Alabama in general. No disrespect well, to Alabama. Well, I, I didn't say it. You said it. And you, you wouldn't really associate them with a first-in-the-world all-digital hospital. But there was. So digitalization or digitization is not just happening in the academic medical centers or the large Kaisers of the world. It's also happening in the communities. So those are some of the compelling changes that have taken place. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think it's a good segue into the question I want to ask about your current role. And as I mentioned up front, managing director and general partner at Artemis Ventures. Let's talk about, you know, what your role looks like and, and what some of the things that you're focusing on, because obviously there are thousands, if not millions of things you could focus on. And I know we'll do a little bit of a speed round on things like AI and oncology and diagnostics later. But, you know, let's talk about two or three things in your current role that really have your attention right now and maybe your broader role, just, you know, what you do and how you sort of interact with the company. So I love my job. Let's start there. Uh, and you'll see in a second why. L let's speak. A, a couple of minutes, maybe a minute or so about Ardeman. It's an early stage venture fund, so very pure play, Silicon Valley. We manage just over a billion dollars. And our typical investment would be, you know, a new diagnostic technique, a new molecule, a new material, a new display, for example. So these are pretty science and engineering heavy subjects, which means you have to hang in there for a long time. There's no quick success when you're doing deep science or deep technology. So our typical holding periods can be as much as 10 years and you have to be patient. You have to allow for market dynamics to change. I mean, 2008 crisis and now the Ukraine crisis and the, the COVID crisis. I mean, you have to go through enough of those market dynamics, let alone the things that have to happen within the company before you see success. So you have to have a lot of patience. There's also a lot of heavy lifting involved. So when you come in early into a company, we are an early stage investor, that means there's a lot of hand-holding with the entrepreneur and coaching them and mentoring them and very often working alongside them and rolling up your sleeves 
and doing what you used to do as a CEO or what I used to do as a CEO. So it's a, it's a mix of a role, identifying the right investments based on where we see the potential, making sure we can gel with the entrepreneur. It's a 10-year journey. It's not a two-year journey. And then making sure that we have the ability to step in, that we know enough about the subject matter, that we can step in if needed. That's what my job entails. Now, what are the areas of investment? Let's stay within healthcare for the time being. We wrote an investment thesis when I joined Ardaman. So I was brought into Ardaman to build the healthcare practice. The thesis was, we will only invest in diagnostics. That's, that was not glamorous at the time. It was very um, contraindicative in some sense. Nobody was investing, or very few people were investing in diagnostics at the time. This is year 2011, 10 years before the pandemic. Okay? And our logic was the following. Diagnostics is about 3% of healthcare expense, yet it determines almost 100% of the outcome, clinical outcome, whether the patient will do well or not. You know, just close your eyes and think for a second about any television show you watch, which has to do with healthcare, be it Grey's Anatomy, be it ER, be it anything you watched before. And where does the one thing hinge on that changes the course of action for the patient? Diagnosing the disease. So almost 100% of your outcome depends on did you diagnose it well. And roughly 80% of the cost downstream is leveraged by, is determined by the 3% you spend up front. And we're saying it's backwards. It's, it makes no sense to not invest in diagnostics. So we became this, use the word pioneer or early adopter or masochist. You, you, you picked the right word. But we started investing in diagnostics. And come 2020, it became fashionable. I mean, we... We made PCR a household term like M&Ms or, or, or a glass of wine, what have you. And, and we are seeing the benefit of investing in diagnostics and bringing the overall cost of treatments down, having early intervention, and essentially better quality of life for people. Well, that's astounding. And as you're saying that, and I've been in healthcare for a while, so it, it's really crazy to think that it accounted for that little but is so impactful you uh, started, I believe, a company called Bioimaging that was acquired by Roche. So clearly your time at Siemens led you down this path of knowing, like, I want to go do this. Let's talk about what that was and what the inspiration was and what was it that Roche saw that they were so inspired to obviously, you know, invest in you and bring you into the fold. Well, there's so many layers to that question. You know, why did I do a startup in the first place? I was pretty comfortable at Siemens. I could have easily retired there. I was you know, at a fairly higher up. Tw 20 years at Siemens? I was two decades at Siemens. Yes, I joined in uh, 1988 and I left in uh, 2008. So it was 20 years, almost to the date, like short by a couple of days. Uh, I could have easily stayed on. So there were a couple of reasons for doing a startup. Number one is just, I call it midlife crisis of some sort. I was in my early 40s, almost mid 40s. And I thought, if I don't quit Siemens now, I don't think I'll ever do it. I, I won't have the resolve five years from now. Number two, if I don't quit now and do a startup, it's unlikely I'll do it when I'm, you know, I mean, people do startups in their 80s, so I'm not denying that. But to do your first startup in your 50s, I don't think that would have happened that easily. The number of factors would have, there is some subtle ageism that we could speak to if we want to. It's not so relevant for the conversation. Uh, so that was the second reason. Third reason was there was a transformation that had happened in radiology. So one big approach to diagnostics in radiology, it had gone digital in the 90s. And yet the other branch of diagnostics, pathology, 
had not seen digitization at all. The pathologists love their microscope. They love to put the slide under the microscope. And we used to joke, the most expensive piece of equipment in a pathologist's office is a fridge. Whereas when you compare it to a radiologist's work, I mean, you're looking at a $2 million MRI machine or a you know, $3 million, $4 million PET CT, what have you. So to, to replicate the transformation that I had seen and, and to some degree led in radiology, to replicate that in pathology seemed like the time was right. And sort of kind of perfect storm of all those things, right age, right motivation, right problem statement to work on, and I quit. Uh, now, of course, in retrospect, I couldn't have chosen a worse time. I left Siemens on 3rd of September, which was a Friday. I joined Biomagen on 6th of September, which was a Monday, 2008. And then 17th September, the world ceased to exist the way we knew it. There was no money to be raised. And at Siemens, you know, for me to raise, say, or, or do, do something stupid that would move the Siemens stock down by 100 million was easy thing to do. And the other way around, if you do something good, it'll move up 100 million. And it was impossible to raise 20 million. So, and my house in New York City, its value had deteriorated. We couldn't buy a home here. Like everything you could possibly think of that could go wrong, did go wrong. And that's where I think if you believe you've learned grit, that's the time to practice it. You don't know you learned it till you get to practice it. And those two years were sheer grit. They were sheer grit. And, you know, all's well that ends well. You know, when the Roche exit happened, I could go back and rewrite the strategy document. And, oh, it was part of my plan. But no, I was, I, they, they, we were in dire straits for two years. And yet it worked out to be a great exit. Well, I love that story. And for those listening in that may not remember, 2008, we saw the stock market, which I don't even know where it is now, north of 30,000, went down to 6,000 and freaked a lot of people out. I was changing jobs as well. Not quite as dramatic as what you did, but I was moving to Austin, Texas, going to a second startup. And I remember thinking like, what am I doing here? But it was the grit, right? It's that stick to It's the grit. One of the things I, I do want to jump to since we're on this topic is when you and I did a prep call, you told me a fascinating story and you're one of these people that I know people, you know, could learn a tremendous amount from you. And we'll touch on some of those other areas in a second. But you told me a story about relocating or actually having to shutter a factory, I believe it was in Germany. And uh, you had a very specific number. And if I wrote this down, hopefully this, this is it. It was 1,738 people. 1,738, yep. And there's a reason why that number is important. And so I'm not going to steal your thunder, but talk about, you find out you have to shut out this factory. You have to let all these people know their life is going to be impacted. You have a year to do it. You have some headwinds that are like, let's just sit tight. And, you know, because normally you don't tell people a year in advance that you're going to lose your job or we're going to close the company because you know that there's going to be mass attrition, but you had a different idea. And so I'll let you tell that story. Well, that's a story very near and dear to my heart because I'm still in touch with most of those people, including one as recently as yesterday. One of the employees wanted a reference and he's one of the people I'd laid off. He wanted a reference. This is the layoff happened in 2006, but sitting in 2023, 17 years later, he asked me for a reference and I spoke with the, the hiring manager and, and we had that reference conversation. So let's, let's go back to year 2005. I was the CEO of Siemens Radiation Oncology, the factory or the global headquarter, both. They were in Concord, California, so about 30 miles north. Just uh, 10 minutes away from where I live. 10 minutes away where you live, exactly right, yeah. And um, we were coming to a conclusion, which was rather dramatic, 
that we don't believe the business would be sustainable if we keep it in the United States. Two reasons. Number one, we had a formidable competitor in the US, a company called Varian, which we eventually bought. So we acquired Varian three years ago. And I, you see, I still use the word we, not they. I've been gone from Siemens for, for more than 15 years now. Um, so that was reason one. Reason two, the sort of people, the expertise that is required to develop, design, and manufacture these linear accelerators, those subjects are not being taught in the United States anymore. Unfortunately, we've lost our edge in areas like radar and pulse power and you know high, high power electronics. It's probably taught in maybe two or three universities in a really rigorous way, and then a few others. So University of Wisconsin, for instance, and Georgia Tech, for instance, Virginia Polytechnic. But we, we've lost our edge as a country in those, those subject matters. We said, in order to make it sustainable, either we create a new crop of people freshly minted from college in the subject, and 10, 15 years from now, they'll be subject matter experts and authorities. Alternatively, we move this headquarter to a location where it's easy to hire those people, or much easier to hire those people. Those subjects are still being taught in, for example, Eastern Europe, in most parts of Germany. And that was the motivation. So the motivation was not, oh, I have to cut cost and let me outsource my manufacturing to China. No, I went from a high-cost country to a higher-cost country. California is not inexpensive. Germany is even more in, more expensive. If you add all the social benefits that the employees get, which is all you know absolutely valid, we went from a high-cost location to a higher-cost location. So there was no sort of kind of the subtle I need to save cost kind of motivation. Now we had two choices: we could keep it all under covers and not talk about it till the final day. Well, by the time we have the factory ready in Germany and so on, that's approach one. The approach two, approach number two, is we tell people now and say, this is the plan, and enroll them in the plan. They have to, I, I, I was taught once by my boss my, and my mentor, Eric Reinhardt, people have to weigh in to buy in. So at the very least, they'll weigh in. Even if they don't buy in, they'll at least have a voice in the process. The other thing we did was we, we didn't bring in a Boston Consulting Group or McKinsey, which is worthwhile. We do it sometime. But in this case, we created a, a focus group of people who had been displaced. People who are, in one case, Holocaust survivors, people who were survivors of the partition of India and Pakistan when the British left, and people who had been dislocated in a very serious way to understand what is the psyche of dislocation? What is the psyche of just having the rug being pulled underneath a few? And from there came the insight, involve them early. If they're involved early, you, you're likely to have a better outcome and oh, by the way, it's just good humanity. I mean, it's just a, a more humane and how should I say, a empathetic thing to do. Well, and treating them like an adult, right? Which we exactly. forget sometimes. People understand. People understand the business motivation. You all you have to do is explain it to them. They'll understand. But if you don't even explain, of course, you're going to foster mistrust and, and all the other downstream effects that come out of it. And all the fears of people, will there'll be a mass defection, there'll be a unionization, there'll be potential lawsuits, all of the conventional wisdom had a likelihood of prevailing had we not gone the other way. So we said, I saw it, you know, pinged my, my boss and said, look, I'm looking to take a very contrarian view. I need your blessing. So he, he gave one of very Eric Reinhardt responses as well. You are the CEO. You are the global peer and leader. Decide. And these are, these are, you know, you don't get this kind of guidance more than five times in your life, right? One sentence sums it all. You are the global CEO. You have the PL responsibility. Decide. It's your job to decide. And so we decide we did. 
we told the people a year ahead of time that we're going to shut down. And now I said, I need your help. So A, I'm telling them, hey, guys, you'll have a job in, in a, a year potentially, but I need your help. I need your help to train your successors in Germany. I need you to even go to Germany and work alongside them for a while. And that's what I need from you. And now on the gift side, so that's a get. The gift side, I understand you have a family. I understand you need a job. And here's how or what Siemens can do. A, we can find your job within Siemens in the Bay Area, if you're willing to go outside of healthcare. You're help, willing to help you find a job within Siemens if you're willing to relocate within healthcare. We can help you find jobs outside of Siemens, but with friendly partners of Siemens. And if all else fails, I'll call my arch rival, my competitor, Varian, and place you there. They'll be only too happy to take you there. And if you want to retire early, of course, that's an option as well. And of course, if all else fails, we'll see to it that you have a, have a reasonable severance to kind of bridge you through your finding a job. And so 1738 was the number of people who heard this speech. And 1709 stayed till the last day. I mean, it was stayed till the last day means till the last day. Yeah, I mean, Ajit, that's an amazing strain. I'm sorry, I flip-flopped to the relocating, but I liked your rationale and I agree. Like, I can attest to the fact that California is an expensive place to live. Europe is more expensive. And I think that probably played into what you did. And by the way, I do want to touch on something you said. I'm a big believer in the fact that words matter. And you use the word enroll. It's a very powerful word. And I had an executive coach that I still near and dear to my heart. His name is Milo. And he talked about these um, contrasts. So you can persuade someone or you can enroll them. And for those listening in, I won't spend time on this, but just think about the difference of me trying to persuade you. So encourage you to do something versus bringing you into the process and showing you the art of the possible. And so I love the fact that you use that word. And that was what you did with these very important 1,738 people. I'm so glad you zeroed in on that word. And it came out so subconsciously, it could only mean that it's been fully internalized. You see, the words like empathy and leading with empathy and all are easy words to use. You don't get too many opportunities to show that you actually mean it. You get very few opportunities of that scale. At some level, at some smaller micro scale, you get an opportunity every five minutes. But to demonstrate at this very large scale, very macro scale, where the stakes are extremely high, and you still choose a very empathetic approach, that shows it's been internalized. And, and I have to give a lot of credit to two people, A, to Reinhardt himself. I mean, he built a culture of inclusion. He built a culture of empathy. He built a culture of enrollment. And then he paired us with great coaches. I mean, you mentioned your coach, Milo. I had a coach, Ed Lamont, still is my coach. It's been, what, 20 years and counting, 24 years and counting. And I'll tell you my first meeting with him. I sat down with him, and I was... 30-something, and he was you know, debating with me something back and forth, and he could see that I'm trying to equivocate, I'm, you know, I'm trying to hide my insecurity, and I'm being defensive, but not trying to show it. And he goes, Ajit, I know you have a good vocabulary. You don't need to use it all today. That's how the conversation began. And even that, in retrospect, was a masterstroke of empathy. Yeah, it gave you permission to be yourself. Absolutely right. You, you're so right. It allowed me to be comfortable in my skin. And what followed was, I can only say brilliance. And as a company, we did that rather well to make sure we had these kind of resources to guide us, coach us. Everybody needs a coach. If you read uh, Atul Gawande or any of these guys who talk about coaching in medicine, 
I mean, even the best surgeon on the planet needs a coach observing from a distance and, and having a perspective and giving an alternative perspective. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And you mentioned books. And so one of the things I do want to touch on that we also discussed, and I actually saw on LinkedIn today, so I'm going to go and look at it more diligently, but you're a voracious reader. I think you said you read over a hundred books or hundreds of books a year. But one of the things that you're kind enough to do is you don't trap that all inward. You actually give back. And so after reading all these books, you do a top 10 list every year. And again, nice and succinct. You can see it on uh, Ajit's LinkedIn profile. But let's talk a little bit about what the process is. So one, I want to know, like, how do you source the ideas? Because if you're reading all those books, you have to be careful that you don't get duds. I'm sure you get an occasional dud. And then what's the synthesis in terms of getting to that top 10 list? Because I'm sure that's not easy to do. Beautiful. So I have to take you back to 1993. There was a big blizzard in New Jersey. We were living in Princeton at the time, uh, Princeton, New Jersey. And, you know, in between going and, and shoveling snow in my driveway and watching reruns of Barney with my two daughters, they were three and one years old at the time. I just decided to manually, with in ink, in longhand, jot down some of my notes on the books I had read that year. I'd read maybe, I don't know, 15, 20 books that year, and I wrote some reviews on six of them. And I shared with a couple of faculty members at Princeton who were my colleagues, and one of them said, oh, it seemed like rather well-written. Why don't you publish it? And I said, oh, come on. I mean, what, what do you mean publish it? He goes, no, I mean publish it. And hence began the process. And the next year, you know, on the average, I read about a book a week, so it's closer to 50 than to 100. But there were years, like 2014, when I had a big injury. I was kind of bedridden for about four months. Probably read more than 100 books that year. So there's, there's been variations. Now, the, the, how, how does something end up in my top 10 list? The criteria is pretty simple. Is it a book I'm likely to read again? And so why would I read a book again? Now, if the book is of the kind, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, if it's of the kind where I know that Later in life, two, three years from now, when I'll be at a different consciousness, I've had different life experiences, this book would mean something different to me. Then it's in my read again pile. And those are the ones that end up in my top 10 list. So it's a very continuous process. It happens as I'm reading the book. I'm saying, oh my God, he's talking about something. For example, there was one sentence, good days don't last, bad days don't last. I'm talking of 1996. I read a book where there was a, the phrase, and it sounds logical, but I have never had that experience. Come 2001, I had that experience. Come 2008, I had that experience. You know, come 2014, I had that experience. Massive injury. You know, I wasn't even sure if I'll walk again. So once I have internalized that, then I know what that sentence meant. So that's, the book was The Road Less Traveled, by the way. It's a book I've read, M. Scott Great. Peck. Yeah, I, one I'm, of my favorites. I've, I've read that book probably five or six times in the last 30 years. So those are the ones that end up in my top 10. Well, I love that. And thank you for sharing that process. And again, I would say go to Ajit's LinkedIn and take a look because I was able to find, I think, his last three lists. And I saw uh, Educated was on there, which is one of my favorites, and uh, Hillbilly Elegy. So I like the fact that you're not just like these deep business books or road less traveled, but obviously they're very serious books, but they're sort of broader than just your traditional business book. Oh, absolutely. No, so I th those books are meant to speak what's in my heart, not meant to speak what's in my mind. They are not a depiction of intellect. They are a depiction of what touched me emotionally. And so, of course, fiction features very heavily in my list, as does philosophy and politics and history and, and 
I think it speaks to who you are, though, as a person. And I can get this strong sense of you're brilliant, but you're you have humility and you're willing to make yourself vulnerable. And that, to me, is the sign of a great leader is someone that mixes those two. And, you know, you had to make a difficult choice with the factory, right, or the uh, the the center that had to move. But you did it with empathy and you did it with a lot of thoughtfulness and conviction, even though I'm sure every night you probably thought, is this really the right thing to do? And I feel bad for having to displace these people. I do want to be respectful of time because I know we ha- we are both on a timer here. And so this next piece is a little bit of a new approach to how I'm going to do this. You have some areas that you're very focused on. You could probably spend an hour on each one, but we're going to try to do a very quick response to it. So 15 to 20 seconds on each one of these. And you can say, this is what I'm excited about. This is what I see happening or whatever. And we'll start with one that we hear a lot about right now. We touched on earlier, but that's AI and healthcare slash pharma honest assessment of like what's real and what's not right now. Yeah. So to say AI will displace doctors is wrong. To say AI can be better than doctors is also wrong. Can AI be more consistent than doctors? Can I can AI help lesser expertise or people with lesser expertise with the knowledge it has garnered from people with higher expertise? All of those are valid use cases. And you find those use cases not only in sub-Saharan Africa, you find them also in middle America where Primary care physicians, for example, are just in general shortage anyway. Primary care physicians in middle America are even higher shortage. So those are the the kind of use cases where AI can help very much. And of course, needless to say, drug discovery and everything you, you read in newspapers is actually correct. Of course, the state of the art is not quite there yet, but that's true for any new technology. Well, I love that answer. So we're on a good path here. Oncology. Let's talk about what developments you're most excited about. So I'll, uh, I'll refer back to a comment I made earlier, which was personalized medicine. So definitely is an area where in oncology, personalized medicine has been in oncology for about a decade and it has done good for the field and for the patients. I should say the opposite order for the patient and for the field. Immunotherapies are another big area of development and it will continue to uh, make larger and larger impact on people with cancer. There are also technologies which are... N- Therapeutics, which are non-chemical, they're not drugs, they're not biological or chemical drugs, they are electroceuticals, if I could call them that. So, for example, if you look at a company called Novocure, it's a helmet that you put on your head, and it's a, it's a treatment for glioblastoma, a, a rather aggressive brain tumor, and it's shown to have a pretty, a pretty significant impact on the, the lifespan and the quality of life of, of patients with GBM. Well, as uh, someone that had a mother-in-law that died of glio, I am very grateful to hear that. And I know that um, Dr. James Allison, who we've also had on the show, is making some strides and helping with a breakthrough. So um, thank you for that. Uh, Something that's very near and dear to your heart, diagnostics. What can we expect over the next three to five years? So diagnostics will really change their demeanor, I should say, right? Diagnostics historically meant yes or no. Do I have the disease? Do I not have the disease? About 20 years ago, it went from yes and no to stratification. What's the grade, mild, medium, moderate, or mild, medium, aggressive? Now we're at a stage where it is becoming truly prognostic, which is for this particular individual, for their particular illness, what combination of drugs is likely to have the best response? So you're not struggling with the hit and trial, the the error uh, rate that that comes because of that. You can bypass all of that and get to first-line therapies that will have a better efficacy, better response upfront. I think that'll be the biggest impact of diagnostics in the near future. And hopefully moves that 3% needle that we talked about earlier, right? Absolutely. We have two left, neurotechnology. 
So neuro is the new frontier. I believe neuro in many ways, not in every way, in many ways is where oncology was two decades ago in terms of our understanding at the molecular level of the disease, the connectome level of the disease. We understand far more about the mechanism of action of Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson, and then all the neuropsychiatric illnesses, depression, anxiety, etc., as inflammatory responses of the body. So there is, in the whole inflammatory system or the immune system, there is a class of knowledge that has existed for a while, but hasn't found its way into neuroscience. And I think that's what's going to drive the next generation of innovations in neuroscience and related in neurotech. Well, the last one, and this sort of ties these all up in a nice neat bow, but longevity, any major breakthroughs on the horizon? Obviously, all of these, I think, will help us on that front of longevity, but thoughts? So it's a very amorphous term. It means many things to many people. If I take it literally, it means long life. But there are four other nuances of it. Long life is one, healthy life, youthful life, and supported life. Supported life means supported with prosthetics, whether it is a knee replacement or eyeglasses or hearing aids or brain implants or cardiac implant. Brain implants are becoming real, especially if you've had a trauma. So I believe personally that it's the youthful life and healthy life that where the focus needs to go. Longevity in and of itself is not a goal. Yeah, would, would some individuals want to live longer? Generally speaking, yes. But if you gave them a choice, live longer, live healthy, they'll say live healthy. If you give them a choice, live healthy and live youthful, they'll say both, but they'll still probably opt for youthful. I've, I've not done the test, but very likely that'll be, my answer would be youthful life. So I believe the technologies that are serving a healthy life and youthful life have far better chance of making it than simply a long life. Well, I love that answer. And I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. One of the questions I started asking during the pandemic this is a little bit more of a personal one is if you could have any wish, could be personal or professional or both, what would it be? More transparency in the system. Our problem was never innovation. Our problem was never capital. I mean, we're the richest country on the planet. We are the most innovative country on the planet. But the lack of transparency in the governance system is it cost us dearly. And that could have been avoided. You know, we, we, we consider ourselves a democracy and most part we are. And transparency of information is a, is a hallmark of democracy. How could we lose that in the time of the biggest crisis we had in the recent decade? Or... I would also say probably recent century. I mean, there have been only a few such crises in the last hundred years. And we, we had an opportunity that we squandered. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And I mean, you see history repeat itself, but definitely that is one of the biggest issues I think we faced over the last 10 years. And that's a profound answer because you're right. I hadn't ever thought of that, but it is a huge blockade to pro progress if you're not doing it correctly. Last one, which is nothing to do with healthcare and much lighter, although maybe it's, you know, joy and mental health. Um, and this is one I've asked from the beginning, but, you know, you're stuck on a proverbial deserted island. Don't worry about technology. You can only take one album with you. Which album would you pick and why? Album as in music album? Yes. Oh my God. This is, this is a very tough question. I asked the you know, the smartest people in the world this, and this is always the one they have the hardest time so, with. So, you know, I have to introduce you to Indian music first in order to answer that question well. So it won't be a 20 second answer. I believe the music that sticks with the most is either the music you learned as a teenager or when you were growing up, you grew up with, or your kids indoctrinated that into you. In my case, it's still the former. It's the Indian vocal and Indian classical is still what makes me cry. I, I can still listen to a flute recital from my teenage years and I could burst into tears for no reason at all. That's the perfect answer and the perfect way to end it. And I think if I remember correctly, 
Dr. Gita Nayar, who was the one that helped introduce us, picked something similar to that in her last podcast that we did. So I love the consistency there. And with that, uh, this is Aaron Strout, the Chief Marketing Officer and the host of the Real Chemistry Podcast, speaking with tons of pleasure in this interview, Ajit Singh, who's the Managing Director, a general partner at Artemin Ventures, and so much more, a true scholar, gentleman, empath. Like, thank you so much, Ajit, for welcoming in, me into your apartment because New York is your home, so I'm saying words specifically, this is your apartment, and for having such a thoughtful, amazing conversation. Thank you so much for, for engaging and creating a safe space to have this conversation. Want more episodes of The Real Chemistry Podcast? Subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts. We post a new episode every Thursday. Visit realchemistry.com for more info.